You're listening to TIP. And so the most exclusive, most limited models are reserved for their best customers. And these are the ones that, you know, get access to actually be able to buy, you know, a million or two million dollar Ferrari. And the crazy thing is that if you get an invitation, you don't say no, because once you get delivery of this Ferrari on your driveway, once it gets to your driveway, it's immediately worth much more than what you paid for it because of that big difference in supply and demand. On today's episode, I am joined by RF Kareem. RF holds a degree in economics from MIT and is a senior investment analyst at Ensemble Capital. During the episode, we chat about the importance of pricing power for a company operating in an inflationary environment, how an investor can determine whether a company has adequate pricing power or not, why Costco has spectacular pricing power despite their very low margins, the investment case for Ferrari, what an idiosyncratic businesses, and a whole lot more. I was personally impressed with the relationship that Ferrari has built with their very loyal customer base, so make sure you stick around to hear all about it. They've built what some would call a cult-like following, which can make for a very profitable business as customers tend to not be very price sensitive. All right, with that, I hope you enjoy today's episode with RF Kareem. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And today, I'm joined by Arif Kareem. Arif, pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, thanks, Clay. I'm very excited to be on the show. I'm a big fan of you and your team. You guys put out some great content, so I'm really honored to be chatting with you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Now, in preparation for our conversation, I took a look at some of your writings and noticed that your team puts a big emphasis on pricing power in a company. With inflation on the rise recently, many companies are seeing rising input costs. Could you talk to our audience about the importance of the businesses we are invested in having adequate pricing power? Yeah, of course. Over time, there's prices increased, right? Obviously, there's there's inflation better than the financial systems in many parts of the world, uh, including ours. And credit to Warren Buffett, who kind of popularized the term pricing power in what he looks for in a competitively differentiated business. And at Ensemble, our number one criterion is how differentiated, competitively advantaged a business is when we're evaluating any business for inclusion in our portfolio. And of course, one aspect of that or one benefit of being competitively differentiated is the ability to raise prices as your own prices go up. But oftentimes, that also manifests itself with being able to raise prices beyond the cost of your own inputs. And of course, those are the best kinds of businesses because you need to see leverage on the operating margin line. So over time, you're adding more and more value for shareholders. Of course, you don't want to abuse pricing power, which is sometimes something that we see and we think that's a very negative thing, where in essence, you're taking advantage of your customer's need or desire for your products, services. And so there's a balance that comes into play between, you know, to create a mutually beneficial relationship and set of transactions with your customer where the value of what you're providing them in terms of product and services leaves quite a bit of you know, what we call consumer surplus for them. So they feel like they're, even though they're paying you a fair price, they also feel like they're getting a good deal in return. And so that's kind of the, the balance. But ultimately, the ability to be able to have pricing power is what allows you to grow beyond the rate of inflation 
you know, both your revenues and your profits over time. And that's, that's one, one of the critical aspects of wonderful business from our, in our opinion. Now, this idea sounds great and makes a ton of sense to me. My question is, how can one determine whether a business has adequate pricing power or not in their business? Yeah, I mean, there's two ways. So one is you look at the top line, which is the revenue, and see how fast that's growing. And if possible, this is not always disclosed or discoverable. You want to look at you know price per unit, right? The ASP, the average sales price per unit that a company sells product or service for. And to the extent that they can grow that at a rate at or faster than inflation, that's one indication. However, there is also I think the more important indication is to look at the operating profit line or gross margin line and the operating profit line. So you're looking at different elements that comprise profits. So gross margin is basically the profit that you have after you pay for the direct costs of the product or service that you sell. And what that tells you is that, so let's say it's a car. If you have a car that you're selling at a gross profit margin that's stable to rising, it's telling you that your ability to price that unit is at or above the cost of your inputs to build that that, you, that one car. And so that's a good indication of your pricing power because what will happen is if you don't, and you also want to compare it to the, to the industry as well, right? So uh, if you don't have pricing power, you'll have sort of an average gross profit, gross margin that's in line with maybe your competitors, right? And that tells you there's kind of a commodity business. And, and there's times when it gets competitive where there'll be volatility in that gross profit line. But one indication that you've got pricing power and get pricing power by being differentiated is by being able to control that gross margin line, right? So it's, it's stable to growing and you'll find it's disconnected from what you'd consider to be the, the rest of the industry for other competitors, you know, for that one particular company that you're looking at. So I think that's one of the signs that I look for. And then on the operating profit line, of course, you know, is the rest of your costs that have to feed into the direct costs for your products down to the kind of the corporate level. So there too, we like to see stability to increasing gross uh, operating margins. Again, indicating to you how much differentiated value your company is actually providing to its customers. Yeah, this is an interesting concept. I think of kind of the business landscape. There are companies that have these higher input costs and have a lot of raw materials that go into their products. And those companies in general, I think might not have as much pricing power because if their input costs increase by say 10% on average, then it's going to be very hard for them to pass that on to their customers. You know, just that year over year, 10% increase. Whereas a, say a technology company that doesn't have a lot of those raw materials, they're able to kind of absorb increased costs because they might not have raw materials. So that's some of the things I like to consider as well is how Mm -hmm. easy are they able to pass that on? That's a great point. I mean, I think technology companies is actually a really good, sort of an interesting case that's very different than, you know, like a car company like I was talking about. In technology, there's this deflationary pressure. It's not even a pressure. It's it's an advantage, I would say, or a characteristic in the sense that there's lots of companies within the technology space where as they grow, what happens is their actual unit costs decline over time per unit basis. And so they could potentially even sell the product cheaper to you every year. And this is, you know, kind of class, the PC is kind of a classic example of this, right? Where they can keep selling it cheaper and cheaper to you as some of the important aspects of the cost of building a PC actually decline in price. So in that way, consumers win. And the nice thing about declining price per unit, in which you're offering the consumer, is that it's the right kind of product, the consumption of that product actually goes up. And so overall, your revenue actually grows because the consumption of units actually grows faster than the price decline and declines. Technology is very unique that way. I mean, traditionally, you didn't have that issue 
with most industries, you, you always had the opposite issue, which was prices rising. And then can you incorporate those rising prices in the price in how you price your product to your consumers? You bring up an interesting point though, and I think this exactly goes to the heart of the question about pricing power, which is that companies that are able to raise pricing to offset the pressure on their own costs, especially in an environment like today, that's the most fundamental definition of pricing power, right? You mentioned that you know some companies have the ability to absorb some of those increases in costs and not have to pass it on to customers, but at the heart, and if you can do that via productivity, that's great. But if you're absorbing that pricing pressure of your inputs and not able to pass on that rising cost to your customers, that signals, there's a temporal aspect to it as well. I mean, you don't have to do it right away necessarily, but over some reasonable period of time, if you, if you can't pass on those increases in costs, that signals that maybe there's not quite pricing power there. Because if you are competitively differentiated, your customers really can't go anywhere else for what you offer. And so the presumption is that the value you're offering is actually an important part of their consumption and it's valuable to the customer relative to their basket of goods they're buying from elsewhere. So, so there's this relativistic model to it too. But to the extent that you offer a differentiated product, it's valuable to the customer, then you should be able to pass on the bulk, not all of the increases in costs that you're seeing in your input level. So essentially, to summarize your points, you're looking at the top line revenue and the gross margins and how those look over time and if they're growing at a rate equal to or greater than inflation. And I really like how you made the point that customers feel like they are getting much more value than they're paying for. Is management you know, taking that into consideration, putting the customer first? And I can't help but think that Companies with low margins will be in a bind with inflationary pressures. And one company that came to my mind that's very popular in the value investing community is Costco, whose, as everyone knows, their margins are very low, yet the stock has performed very well in the past couple of years. What do you make of Costco's very good performance? Yeah, Costco is a really interesting example in, in the context of this discussion in the sense that they do optically have a low margin. However, it's a very differentiated business in the sense that they bring a huge amount of scale as that middleman that sits between suppliers of goods that consumers want to buy and consumers. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to get consumers to spend most of their consumption basket, their dollars, their wallet at Costco. And the value proposition they offer to the consumers is that by being a Costco member, you're going to get the lowest price per serving, let's say, you know, Typically, the size of the basket they're selling to the consumer is larger you know, at Costco than it would be at a grocery store, for example. So you'll get you know, whatever, 30 granola bars instead of a pack of 12 you know, when you're buying. So that way, they get uh, consumers to come shop at Costco, spend a lot of their consumption wallet at Costco. Then they go to the suppliers and they say, look, we have all these consumers shopping with us. We have all these dollars they're spending. We have a limited number of products we'll carry on our shelves. And each product usually has a UPC code, and that's called a, a SKU. You know, that's what it's referred to. So they carry something like 3,000 SKUs compared to like an average grocery store that'll have like roughly 30, 40,000. And Walmart could have like over 100,000. And so every SKU on the shelf of Costco sells huge volume. So they go back to the supplier and say, look, you have to give us the best pricing per serving that we can then offer to our customers if you want to be on our shelf. And also Costco will vet, you know, quality of the stuff they're actually putting on their shelves. And so to get a spot on Costco's shelves, by suppliers is a very desirable thing because you, you can sell at a lower margin to Costco, but in exchange, you get much higher volumes than your typical grocer, right? And so what ends up having this relationship is that customers feel confident they're getting the best price per serving at Costco in exchange for buying in bulk. So then when you look at Costco in the middle, 
they basically take you know a certain gross margin on everything in the store. So they're not trying to maximize dollars of profit. They're trying to get enough dollars of profit to cover their overhead. The bulk of their profits actually comes from the memberships that customers pay. So every year to be a customer and to go to Costco, you have to be a member and you have to pay $60 a month to be a member. Uh, and then they have like an executive level member, which is like 120 maybe. And of course that membership fee is 100% margin, right? If you compare that 100% margin membership fee revenue to the operating profit dollars that they actually come out at the end with, it's something like 80% of profit dollars are basically membership fees. And so for Costco, they just need enough margin on the products they sell to cover their overhead. Whereas, you know, kind of the profits at, at the bottom line end up coming out of that membership fee. So it's a really cool model, right? Because then the store is incentivized to work for the customer because the way they make most of their profits is by adding customers over time rather than charging them as much as they can in terms of margin. Yeah, it's funny that people know they're getting the best deal at Costco, yet it seems like every time we go there, everyone's spending at least 200 bucks each time, each time yeah, they visit. Yeah. But like you've mentioned there, you know, going for the bulk purchases. And another piece I noticed with Costco when I visited their store is their Kirkland branded products. It's their own brand. That's often priced yep. lower than the other brand sitting right next to it, say for toilet paper. The Kirkland toilet paper is priced lower and gives you a better deal than the Charmin sitting right next to it. And I find that dynamic pretty interesting. And you see the same thing at Sam's Club as well. Yeah. What's funny about Kirkland is that oftentimes like Kirkland brand, which is a Costco brand, is actually a rebranded Charmin or rebranded Starbucks or rebranded Tide, you know, whatever it is, right? I mean, I, I don't know exactly what the, the match is, but it's actually, they'll go back sometimes to some of their suppliers and say, look, we want you to provide an even lower price under our brand name. And be like, well, why would you do that? Like, why would Planters Peanuts do that and make it Kirkland Peanuts? Because you're kind of diluting your, A, you're leaving margin on the table. You're diluting your own brand to some degree. Most of the time, you don't actually know who made that Kirkland brand. So that way, they sort of create this, this veil. So you don't actually know that, oh, you know, planters made these peanuts for Kirkland. And, and on the shelf, there's planters, there's Kirkland. Kirkland's cheaper. I should just go with the Kirkland, right? But suppliers will do this. One of the exceptions is Starbucks, actually. You'll see the Kirkland coffee is actually made by Starbucks. And Starbucks has its logo there, which is really interesting because that's another sort of, you know, branded product that wants its own brand, you know, to be kind of first on display. And, and they want you to buy Starbucks, not Kirkland necessarily, but why these name brands will do this is because, again, it's just trying to get more shelf space, you know, with Costco, more incremental dollars, because it's very profitable dollars based on the volumes that they get from Costco. So it's amazing. I mean, I mean, there's two parts that are amazing. So one is that Costco has built so much trust with its customers that customers are like, oh, I trust the Kirkland brand by Costco actually as good as Starbucks or as good as well, with Starbucks, you know, it's made by Starbucks. But let's say my peanuts from Kirkland will be as good as planters, right? But secondly, it tells you a lot about the power they have in that value chain, right? Between the manufacturer, the supplier, you know, kind of the middleman is Costco and the customer. Costco has so much distribution power, they're actually able to get even more leverage against suppliers in favor of the customers, right? Which is, which is amazing. Tying that back to that pricing power point that you made, generally speaking, you know, kind of as a rule of thumb, when you see low margins, you think, oh, this is kind of a commodity business. But Costco stands out as being kind of this exception in the sense that it actually has pricing power in that it can actually push all of the cost increases to the customer. On the other hand, it also has pricing power against suppliers in that if a supplier says, I need to raise pricing by 10%, Costco could say, well, you're raising a 10 for everybody else. How about you raise it seven for me to stay on my shelf? And there the supplier will absorb you know, the added cost, not Costco. Costco almost as a rule has a standard gross margin they'll take on any product. So if the cost goes up, their, their price is going to go up. 
but yet what you pay at Costco is going to be a better deal than pretty much anywhere else. So it's a relative game as well, obviously. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. Let's transition to talk about another company, a very interesting and potentially underrated company I wanted to discuss with you is Ferrari, which is a holding of yours at Ensemble Capital. When I look up this company in our TIP finance tool, I see a price to free cash flow ratio of roughly 45, while the company's you know growing at a relatively steady rate. With the exception of 2021, we saw a huge boost in revenues. I'm really curious what your investment thesis is on Ferrari. Yeah, sure. Ferrari is a really interesting company, but we all know they make cars, right? Very high-end sports cars. It's been around for, I think it's about 70, 75 years now. And its heritage comes from racing. You know, originally the founder of Ferrari, Enzo Ferrari, ran the racing team at Alfa Romeo. And then I think there's some kind of falling out. I don't know exactly what the details of it are, but but he ended up going out on his own and starting his own racing team under his own name, Ferrari. And it turned out, you know, racing is an expensive business, right? And so he designed and built racing cars that did really well early in, in the history. of, And he was one of the founding car companies for Formula One, right? So they were racing. And uh, of course, his car ended up winning multiple years. And it turned out that people actually wanted to buy one of these winning racing cars. 
And what he would do is, is sell them kind of the old car because every year you'd have to build a new car, you know, faster, better handling, et cetera, et cetera. And so the old car would be obsolete, but people would pay dearly, you know, for those old cars. And so, of course, it kind of clicked that, well, it's expensive to race, it's expensive to lease, build these cars. Why not build a few extra cars to sell to some people and use that to fund the racing team? And that's exactly what he did. But he wouldn't build very many of these cars to sell. And so when he would build these cars, the demand would be higher than the supply of cars. And he would select his customers. And so you would have to go a long ways to be somebody that he would select to be able to buy his car, which is an incredible you know, thought, right? Because these were not cheap. These are expensive cars that you, know, you basically had to get into his good graces to buy. And so that ethos, that culture, that legacy of sort of the relationship between the car and the customers still exists today in the sense that Ferrari doesn't build enough cars to meet the demand for those cars. And we all know that, you know, you don't use a Ferrari to go from point A to point B. You use your Honda, Civic, or your Toyota, or BMW, whatever it is. The Ferrari is kind of your weekend car. It's your showpiece. It's your collector car, right? So it's a highly coveted object from an emotional perspective, right? There's like no utility to it, but it's all emotional. And so when you kind of put those pieces together, you create this beautiful business model in Ferrari where they build these beautiful sports cars that are highly coveted and they don't make enough for everybody that wants one. And so that creates this sort of pricing power under the car. And then it also supports the used car market as well, because every year they come out with a new car every year, but they have a model range and there's always new cars in each part of the model range that, that comes out in any particular year. And so they're in this business of basically selling these highly coveted cars to people with means who really, really want them. And you could want them because, you know, you're a car nut like I am, you know, just like fast cars. And the driving experience is very differentiated. It's loud, it's kind of race and field makes you feel like a race car driver, or you can sell them to people that want to show that they're wealthy, right? So it's a status piece that plays to that. Thirdly, it's, uh, it's also a kind of mechanical art. So there's people that like to collect these things, you know, as showpieces or collectibles over time as investments that rise in value. Historically, we've seen, you know, certain limited models rising in value faster than, you know, the stock market has. So if you're picking the right cars to invest in, it's a way to actually accrue more wealth over time than, than you would, you know, investing the same amount of money in the stock market, for example. It's funny, their limited edition cars are only available to those who currently own Ferraris. So there's definitely this club right. feel, plus they get these other special benefits. They can go to events and such. And one statistic that was in your writings was two-thirds of new Ferrari buyers are repeat buyers. And the prices mm-hmm. of those Ferraris are anywhere between 250000 to a million plus. And these are the types of wealthy individuals who really aren't even looking at the price tag. So if that doesn't scream pricing power, I don't know what does. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. So that's a point that I didn't make, which is that you know when you are a Ferrari owner, you're part of a club. And I mean, the analogy I like to make is that, you know, most people are not most people, but those people that want to be part of a club, you know, can pick different kinds of clubs. But I think the analogy for most listeners will be that, you know, if you have like a country club in your town, you pay to be a part of it. And as a result, you get to hang out with people in that network, basically. Ferrari, in many ways, is a club that's a global network. It's a global network of kind of the wealthiest, many successful people. And Ferrari actually goes a great length to make their customers and Ferrari owners feel special. They'll arrange uh, events, both 
you know, kind of in, in your country, but also bring people to special events in Italy or elsewhere in Europe, for example, or other parts of the world, where they'll invite their most elite customers from all around the world to come, you know, to those events. And those events could be, you know, a track day in Barcelona at a real racetrack, at a real F1 racetrack. And you can bring your Ferrari or Ferrari can actually arrange transportation for your Ferrari. There are people that have these track only Ferraris that they have Ferrari store for them in Europe. And then when these events happen, Ferrari will bring their cars for them to actually race, you know, these track meets. And of course, part of it is that, you know, you're not just going there to have fun with your Ferrari, but you're really going there to also meet other very successful people from around the world that you're building relationships with. And so that alone, you know, can be much more valuable than the value of that, you know, million dollar Ferrari that you bought, you know, to be part of the club. But as you say, it takes work to become part of the club. So, you know, those million dollar Ferraris, you know, I think, you know, 2 million, you know, 3 million, but those high-end Ferraris are very limited models. Usually it's, you know, on the order of like 500 units that are sold for that particular model. And so they're very desirable. In order to get on that list, you don't say, oh, hey, I would like to buy a LaFerrari. No, 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 no. You get invited to buy a LaFerrari. There's no way otherwise you get to buy one, right? So Ferrari actually has this different tier of customer list, depending on how loyal a customer you are, aka how many Ferraris you own or how much, how many you bought, how often you come in and repeat buy from Ferrari that moves you up the echelon of, you know, these tiers. And so the most exclusive, most limited models are reserved for their best customers. And these are the ones that, you know, get access to actually be able to buy, you know, a million or $2 million Ferrari. And the crazy thing is that if you get an invitation, you don't say no, because once you get delivery of this Ferrari on your driveway, once it gets to your driveway, it's immediately worth much more than what you paid for it because of that big difference in supply and demand. In fact, one of the things that Ferrari does is it actually contracts you, limits you from selling that Ferrari, reselling that Ferrari for you know, a year and a half, two years. You don't go back and just flip it. It's an interesting relationship that Ferrari has with its customers from, from that perspective. So yeah, the better the customer you are, you know, you'll get the newest models first. You'll get the limited models. You'll be amongst this, this small list of people that get a limited model. So it could be a very profitable enterprise for you as, as a customer as well. Again, it's just, you know, building these relationships, creating this network and creating this sort of incredible cycle. One other thing I'll add is that on a topic of pricing power, which of course is very relevant today, you know, in these days when we see high inflation rate, is that, you know, when you think about managing a limited supply model business without frustrating too many customers, you kind of need, and I think this is, this is an incredible you know, part of the business, you kind of need the price of the product to actually increase roughly in line with the rate at which the wealth of your customers increases. Because over time, you know, there are more and more people that get you know, nominally wealthier and wealthier, but you want to create this exclusivity you know, in your product. And Ferrari only sells 11, 12,000. I mean, they sold about 11,000 cars last year. They're going to sell something like 12 to 13,000 this year. So it's not many units. You know, I mean, this is nothing compared to like, you know, most auto companies will make millions of units. Porsche makes 300,000 units. Ferrari makes 12, you know, 11, 12, 13. I mean, it's, it's nothing. It's tiny. And we estimate that the number of high net worth individuals in the world who could potentially buy a Ferrari could be a customer is on the order of like, you know, it's kind of a rough guess, but it's in the ballpark. Right? Something like 5 million people can afford to buy a Ferrari, right? They have liquidity, the net worth, you know, outside of their main home to be able to spend, you know, anywhere from 250,000 to a million bucks on a car. So A, you know, you kind of want it so that you don't have, I don't know, 100,000 people wanting to buy 500 cars. That's a really frustrating experience for all those people. You want to manage it. And the way you manage it is by basically pricing the car high enough that there's a certain number that can afford it and want it, but it's not an overwhelming number that'll get frustrated. And that certain number also have an incentive to 
work their way to try to get up into that top tier list. There's a, this really interesting pricing model, you know, built into the company. And I'll just end it with just saying that what it really translates to is that Ferrari has to raise prices to stay exclusive. And the thing is, customers want a Ferrari to be exclusive, right? Because that supports the value of their cars they're buying from Ferrari. And so customers are kind of happy for Ferrari to raise prices. Where do you ever see that? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, Ferrari most definitely benefited from this you know, sort of asset boom over the last 10, 20 years. Obviously, wealthy people own assets. They own stocks and real estate that have massively appreciated in value over the years. And I just looked it right. up. You mentioned these numbers, but Ferrari, they sold over just north of 11,000 cars in 2021. And in comparison to Ford, they sold 1.7 million vehicles. So they're obviously in a very different business than just Ford, for example. I'm curious, do they have any actual competitors in the business that they are in where this community business, this exclusivity and scarcity around their business? So Ferrari is very unique. I think of them as having built this business model. I don't know if that's actually true, but I haven't come across anybody else that sort of, you know, has all these different aspects to it. Now, having said that, I mean, when I first started looking at Ferrari, you know, I'm a car nuts. I read car magazines all, you know, growing up, I was always reading car magazines. So, I, I mean, we all know these brands like Ferrari, Lamborghini, Aston Martin, Porsche, right? And when they went public in 2015, they were spun out of Fiat, which was the majority owner of Ferrari. And, you know, initially... Sort of the, and this is really interesting. Like just from a from a research perspective, investor perspective. I mean, normally a brand name of Ferrari, everybody knows Ferrari. You think this be a hot IPO? It's probably going to be grossly mispriced. It's going to be so expensive, and that's kind of the stereotype prejudice I had. I guess I would say until I came across a report from an analyst, and you know, I was just kind of looking at it out of curiosity, and I noticed certain aspects of the business. You know, so one was just that in that. Great recession in 2008, 2009. I would have thought Ferrari would have lost, I don't know, 10 or 20% of their business or, or something like that, you know, some, some big number. They only sold like 4% less units, roughly, you know, or 9%. It was like between like 4 and 9%. What one was the revenue, one was the units, right? I can't remember now which one was it. I might be flipping it, but it was either revenue was down, you know, 4% or 9% when like the rest of the car companies were down like 20, 30, you know, big number. Ferrari was very sticky. So that was really surprising to me. And when I started digging into it is when I sort of understood the power they had with their customers, this relationship that they had. And I'm not sure if anybody else has that sort of a relationship, because when you look at historically the cars that have grown in value, like I, if you look at like the most valuable cars, you know, in history, and I'm sorry, my number is a little rusty, but I want to say something like, you know, three out of the top five most expensive cars sold at auction are Ferraris. I think it's like seven out of 10 you know, and, and it goes on, like you can go up to like, you know, the top 100. It's like Ferrari has a predominant presence, you know, in those lists. And that says something about the, the legacy, the brand, the value that people associate with Ferrari, right? So I don't think there's another brand that's quite like that. I mean, you'll see every now and then there'll be some special model from a brand that comes up as a one-off that's highly coveted, but they don't have the consistency that Ferrari has in having so many models that end up being so desirable amongst collectors. You know, in many ways, it's really funny. I went to Ferrari, Ferrari hosted an investor day and a customer event back in 2018. And so they, they were public in 2015. And I suspect they sort of felt like people didn't really understand Ferrari. And, and you know, initially it was me too, until I dug into it, like in 2016 is when I dug into it. 
and then really came away impressed with kind of the business model, started to understand you know, the scarcity model, exclusivity, the relationship with customers, two thirds of repeat buyers, what, who, why? You know? And then you come to realize that people that own like 24 hours, right? They're, they're collectors. But part of the reason they're collectors is also because they have to keep purchasing to be invited to buy the next you know, high and limited model. So they'll buy like the, the entry-level $250,000 model, right? But, but with some perks, and maybe $350,000 because we can personalize it, right? To make it special to them. But this is the thing, like people really get this emotional like thrill or emotional high, you know, from purchasing Ferraris and driving their Ferraris, right? And it's very unique in that way. But having said that, I mean, I'm sure people that, that get their 9 Porsche 911 are also thrilled. And those that get Lamborghinis are also thrilled. But it's just that over time, the consistency of the brand and the legacy has been such that it also makes for, you know, certain models will make for good investments. And it's just the persistence is a key part of this, as well as that network, like I talked about. So in 2016, I started to understand kind of the, the specialness of the business and how the business worked. And although optically it looked expensive compared to like, you know, if you looked at like the auto industry, really it wasn't the auto industry you were, you were really comparing it to, you were comparing it to the luxury industry. So kind of the, I like to think of the analogy being Hermes, you know, the handbag company, the high-end European handbag company. I remember, you know, reading that, oh, their Birkin bag has kind of this exclusivity thing to it as well, just like Ferrari does, where you don't stroll into like an Hermes store and go, oh, I want to buy an $80,000 Birkin bag. No, like you have to like work your way up, you know, and I, I don't know the details of it, but there too, you, you know, it's like, it's very exclusive. You, you have to earn your way to be able to purchase a Birkin bag. And so when we realized that this was more of a luxury business than it was a sort of a utilitarian, you know, car business. And, and we knew it wasn't that. It was definitely a luxury business. Not many people buy a $250,000 car, a million dollar car to commute to work, right? But there was a lot of confusion in the market about how to value this thing. And so, and so that was more the right analogy. And a part of that, like our evaluation technique revolves around being able to sort of understand how forecastable and durable and predictable future earnings streams are for a company. And then, you know, kind of the normal financial model, you you know, you discount that back to today and then you have some sort of price. And there's some assumptions in there for us, there's sensitivity analysis and stuff, but if there's not the duration in the product, the service or the brand, it's really hard to know what it'll look like in 10 years. And the thing is in most stocks, they the value they embed for a company, the majority of the value comes from the future, like beyond 10 years. And so the persistence of that, the durability of sales, the durability of the brand, the durability of the relevance to customers, those are all really, really important qualitative pieces to build a confident 10-year-plus model kind of thing, right? And even if you're not explicitly modeling, but to have confidence that, you know, in year 10, 15, 20, that this will still be the kind of business that I, I think it is today, you know, kind of thing. And in general, you want to buy something that you think will have that persistence, if not improve. It's a very hard thing to do. And very, very few companies fall into that category of having that visibility. So with Ferrari, what was really interesting is they put up this event where they unveiled their Monza SP1, SP2 limited production models. And this was the first in this sort of umbrella, what they call the Icona line, which is sort of a design first type of line of collectibles. And these are really like cars that are taking some of their most famous designs, most desired designs from the past and basically creating a modern version, you know, off of some of the key aspects of those designs. And so they had this customer event and they wanted investors to come and meet customers and talk to customers. And it was really incredible because, you know, um, I remember they had the whole big premiere for the car and then a reception. And in the reception, you know, they had two of those cars out, you know, for you to look at, you know, to sit in. And I remember being behind this older gentleman and he was, you know, taller and bigger than I was. And I was just talking to him, I say, oh, what a beautiful car. What do you think? And he was like, oh, I love this. This is a great car. 
And I was like, oh, so you're a customer, obviously. Uh, you've been invited. So what do you think? Do you think you're gonna, you know, put in a, a bid? You know, are you gonna try to buy one of these cars? And he goes, oh, I've already done it. I've signed, I've signed on the bottom line already. And the thing was, he didn't actually know what the price was. Like they hadn't disclosed pricing. Like might've been a range, but at the end of the day, it turned out this car was sold at roughly $2 million, you know, a piece. But whether it was one and a half million dollars, $2 million, $3 million, kind of didn't matter a whole lot. I don't think, you know, to this type of customer. Uh, Cause at the end of the day, like I said, it's limited product. You get it. Once it lands on your driveway, you work more. And Honestly, like, okay, so that's kind of like the rational financial sense piece to it. But this guy, you know, just, I mean, I, I didn't delve too deeply into kind of his personals, but he obviously carried himself as, you know, he's some kind of executive. He's probably, you know, running a company with like, you know, many, many employees. He's the kind of guy that could, you know, pretty much buy whatever he wants, but he wants to buy his Ferrari. And the thing is, in his tone, in his eyes, he was like a kid at Disneyland, right? Like, what else is going to bring that kind of a feeling to someone like that? He's got like, you know, big responsibilities, you know, he could buy whatever he wants. But at the end of the day, this thing like brought so much like giddiness and excitement to him. Like that's really the magic of Ferrari, right? Yeah, it's funny. I did notice that they have these product releases where they showcase all their new products, their limited editions and such. And all these true fans come in. They have these huge events where all these people from everywhere all around the world are coming in for these events. And it really reminded me a lot of Apple and Tesla where they just developed this community of true fans. Yeah. And they just take mm-hmm. it to a whole new level on their own. Yeah, no, exactly. You know, it's, it's funny. We used to own Apple. And one of the things that we always thought was fascinating was that I don't think it happens anymore, but but this is, you know, back in the first 10 years of the iPhones, people would line up out the door. Like they would line up at stores around the world. They would camp for like a night or two. It's like, oh my gosh, like what is this product, right? And all, like, they would line up just so they could be at the door and be like, here, Apple, take my thousand dollars. What an incredible business model to have. And that's exactly it. Ferrari is the same thing, only like at a different scale, right? Like we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars or, you know, or millions as opposed to, you know, a thousand dollars. And that's the thing. It's like, when you think about the demographics of those that buy Ferraris and how enthusiastic they are about it, it's like this universal human feeling, right? That, that we all want, you know, the excitement, the passion that makes life, you know, fun. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. 
This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. In one of your articles, you described Ferrari as an idiosyncratic business, which is a term I hadn't read too much about before. Could you describe what this term means and how it applies to Ferrari specifically? Yeah, sure, sure. So the word idiosyncratic means it's something that is different than the rest, you know, roughly speaking. So like we'll think of like we're saying like cars, right? Like we think of cars as transportation. And of course, like many people like their cars, they get excited about their cars and stuff. But at the end of the day, for most people, the car is a transportation piece and it'll depreciate over time. And at some point you'll have to replace it, right? But when you think of a Ferrari, it's idiosyncratic in the sense that it's not really a car that you're buying, right? You're buying anything but a car. Like you're buying the experience, you're buying the emotion, you're buying to the network, you're buying the status, whatever your motivation is, or, you know, like art is a collectible, right? So you're not buying the car for actually transportation. That's one way to think about it, right? It's, it's idiosyncratic. Apple is also an idiosyncratic business in the sense that, you know, they sell a device that you actually use. And prior to the iPhone, the model in, in the US at least was you'd get like your dumb phone for free or like for 50 bucks, right? And it was sort of like when they first introduced the iPhone, I think they priced it at, I want to say like $4.99 or $6.99 or something like that, right? And it was exclusively sold through AT&T here in the US. And they had these like distribution partnerships around the world where it was like one main telco carrier sold the iPhone and became like the differentiation for that carrier. And so that was an interesting model to go by. So again, it's kind of this, a little bit of an exclusivity thing, right? If I wanted an iPhone, I had to go to AT&T. I couldn't use it on Verizon or anywhere else. But at the same time, you know, we were coming from a model where people were used to like free phones or a $50 phone or $100 phone, not a $500 phone. And not just that, but you also have to pay an extra $40 a month for a data plan, right? On top of your like voice service plan. So it was like, wow, this is really expensive, right? The common perception was that this was going to be a very niche product, just like the Mac, very niche. Like not many people use this thing. Oh, there goes Apple again with their kind of their funky model, right? But it turned out that it was such a useful device that it actually became very desirable for many, many people. And over time, they brought the price of that down, not because the iPhone got cheaper, but because carriers subsidized it with more money. Right? So the carriers actually paid for a lot of this, which ultimately ended up with the consumers, right? because we paid for data plans and things like that that were more expensive than whatever our voice plan was. But over time, Android phones caught up in terms of technology, like the raw capabilities, utilitarian capabilities of the iPhone. And it was always like, okay, well, the iPhone is going to have to get cheaper at some point because, you know, why would you pay $1,000 for this iPhone when you could buy this Android phone for $250, right? And the point was iPhone users didn't switch for the most part. They stuck to this $1,000 phone that had the same technology as the $250 phone. And the difference was 
emotional. It's like emotional. It's the user interface. Apple is the cool brand. Apple became in some place like China, Apple became the luxury brand. Like you showed off that you actually were well off by owning an Apple phone as opposed to, you know, any generic smartphone. So that's another idiosyncratic business that you know, when you looked at the PC business, it always became lowest common denominator. Prices always fell. Prices, it was very competitive. And the analogy was being made that in the smartphone business, the same thing would happen because this is basically a PC in your pocket. And yet Apple defied that by all these different emotional things that are brought in into the experience that other manufacturers were not able to do. And so that, that again, makes it idiosyncratic. It's, it's very different than the rest of the competitors. Very interesting idea. Shifting back to Ferrari, I mentioned earlier that its valuation seems to be on the higher end at a surface level, but it also seems like this is a business that is likely to be around and bring in more revenue over the years to come. Because they've built this moat and the fact that they've been around for more than 75 years, they have a pretty good track record. I'm curious what do you think of their valuation given it's trading at a multiple much higher than the overall market? Yeah, sure. So just a high level, when Ferrari went public, they were selling on the order of seven to 8,000 cars a year, and they hadn't grown their units very much in prior years. Since they've gone public, they have had a little bit of a change in the way they've approached the market. And I think it's been the right thing. And there were a lot of questions as to whether it was smart to do this or not because of the exclusivity part of their business. So specific idea about exclusivity is limiting the number of units that are out there, right? Which then props up their price, supports their price. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't grow the number of units. Now, if you grow too much, then you lose exclusivity. Then you don't have that coveted, unmet desire, right? Which supports pricing. Uh, So you see the pricing come down and that starts to unwind the traditional way that the business model works, which is that you buy Ferrari, you buy the next one, you can sell your previous one for, it hasn't depreciated like 50% kind of thing. If it's like a 250,000 entry model, maybe it'll be down 10 or 20%, but not like 50, right? Like most cars would be. Uh, And then it'll kind of be stable actually for for a long time. And if you have a limited model, it'll actually appreciate. And so that results in kind of some repeat business they get from existing Ferrari owners who understand this dynamic and are willing to, you know, buy the next Ferrari. In exchange, Ferrari gets, you know, a great visibility. So the question was, could they actually increase the number of units in total that they sell without diluting that exclusivity aspect of the business? And the answer so far turns out to be yes, because now they're shipping 11,000 units and they're still seeing you know good pricing power and good pricing stability in the used market. And so the other aspect of it is pricing power. So over time, when they come out with a refreshed model or a new model, so sometimes it's a brand new model, sometimes a refreshed you know existing model, they'll usually raise pricing on the, on the car. So just as an example, you know the average selling price on a Ferrari back in 2015, around the time they went public. I'll just give that number real quick because it's, it's really illustrative of that pricing power. So it's not that they necessarily take the same unit and increase its price you know, dramatically. It's more like you know every X number of years, they usually think they refresh every three years and then they come out like a revamped product. But their average selling price in 2015 was $271,000 per unit. And they were selling... Seven, looks like 7,664 units what they sold. Last year, their average selling price was $320,000 and they had over 11,000 units they sold. So they grew both pricing and the number of units. And of course, that resulted in double-digit top-line growth you know, over time. I think that model continues to, to work for a number of years. It's unclear how far. And in many ways, the dynamic model. So Ferrari's watching how many customers are asking for a certain model. How many are they selling? What are the wait lists like? Currently, their wait lists are, are, it's not unusual to see 18-month wait lists right now, which is on the high end of, of what's desirable. They want to keep it at kind of a year. When it gets much beyond a year, 
then they worry about potentially customers going to like Aston Martin or Lamborghini or somewhere else. I don't want to wait two years for a car. I want this car now. So if I can't get it in a reasonable amount of time, I'm just going to go somewhere else. But I would really like a Ferrari if I can get it. And so when you think about valuation, like I said, there's elements to it that play into it. For a given amount of capital invested in the company that can create more profit dollars off that capital is worth more than one that creates less profit dollars. So in other words, return on capital. The higher the return on capital, the more valuable the business. So that'll impact the multiple. Secondly, a company that can grow faster is going to be more valuable than a company that grows less fast and in a durable way. So in the stock market, we often see companies that grow, you know, 50%, 25%, 15%, 5%, you know, kind of thing. But a company that can grow 10, 12% a year, 8%, 10% a year, you know, for 20 years, let's say, is going to be worth a lot more than the company that basically does 100%, 50%, 25%, 15%, 10%, 5%. Because they don't have the duration of growth in there. So from our perspective, Ferrari is, you know, a very profitable, very high return on capital business. We think it has a number of years of double digit or near double digit growth. And it's really based on this assumption that they can probably grow their units by mid single digits to high single digits. So call it five to seven, 8% a year for a number of years, and that they can grow pricing by mid single digit percent, right? So you're getting roughly half the growth of call it 10% a year from units and half the growth from pricing. On that unit growth, one smart thing Ferrari's done, this is amazing. It's like, you know, when you think about a company, like we think about investing, we think of stocks, right? Stock price goes up, price goes down. You know, we get happy when it goes up. We're sad when it goes down, that sort of thing. But when you are a long-term investor, the thing you really want to do is really understand the business. And that's where it gets really, really interesting. Because when you study enough businesses and follow them over time, you really start to see how... A business is like an organism. It's always adapting. It has to adapt. And part of adaptation, just like you and me, is you know trying some new things, learning from mistakes. Something works right, then you do more of that, right? You know, and so it's this perpetual sort of evolution towards like optimizing for, in this case, value, you know, revenue and, and profits. But that's a derivative of optimizing for creating things that your customers will love that adds value to their life, right? Like ultimately, all businesses are that. It's about creating things that customers will love by being able to recruit and retain employees that are wonderful, that are essential piece of providing that value to the customers and then having enough value created for the customers, for them to be happy, have consumer surplus for the money they're paying, have enough to like pay your employees well and provide them good benefits and treat them well, and then have enough leftover after that for shareholders to also benefit in the form of profits, right? So the wonderful thing about a company like Ferrari is that you can see, we've seen, you know, how management over time has pulled different levers, experimented. So in terms of like challenge of how you stay exclusive while also growing the number of units you sell, well, one of the things they did is they actually created more types of models. So I don't remember the specific numbers, but I'll just throw it out there. Let's say they had 10 models, you know, at 2015. I don't think it was that, maybe that many, but they've created like some sort of new category. So one is like the SF90 Stradale, which was introduced, I think, last year, which was their first production hybrid. I would think one really good opportunity for them would be to expand into EVs as a new revenue generator as well, which they look to be releasing over the coming years too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we're seeing Ferrari evolve, you know, uh, into kind of EV front. It's something that's necessary because of regulatory reasons over the next decade where, you know, countries around the world are mandating either lower emissions or just all out EV only sales or they're actually banning fossil fuel sales. And so that, of course, is kind of a push for Ferrari to head towards that route when traditionally they've had cars that had, you know, V12s and V8 engines that consumed a lot of gasoline. But one of the things that Ferrari has done opportunistically, you know, again, going back to this kind of 
creativity and adaptation by companies is they've actually started to release models that hybridize the Ferrari, an electric powertrain that complements the, the fossil fuel today to actually not just improve the fuel consumption, the you know, CO2 emissions, but also improve the performance of the car. And in the process, you know, at the end of the day, if you're improving performance of the car, you're adding more value to the customers so in the process being able to charge more. So a good example is the SF90 Stradale, which was uh, introduced, I think it was last year. It was priced at, you know, roughly 500,000 euro, which is a price point they didn't actually have for like a non-limited production model, right? So they've got those very elite limited models and those are like in the 800,000 and higher. And then they had kind of their production models, which are the ones that aren't limited. I mean, they're, they're still limited, but not exclusive models, let's say, right? And those are kind of that $250,000, $350,000, dollars range. The Stradale actually came in a tier above that, but below the limited, you know, in $500,000. And effectively, after you put in all the options that you want, it'll be kind of a $650,000 car or so, right? So that's a new price point that they brought this car into that leverages the higher performance. It's like a thousand horsepower, right? Between the electric power plant and the V8 that it has. But you basically are creating this new price point for this new car that incorporates what the hybrid powertrain, which... Ferrari had to do anyway, but they found a way to make it value additive for the customer, therefore themselves and us, right, in, in the process. And so that's one of the things that's really interesting. They have a, people are talking about it as an SUV Ferrari, and Ferrari insisted like not making an SUV. So some kind of a more utilitarian car, that's going to be a four-door car probably. It's called a Puro Sangue. Uh, they talked about this, you know, being in development back in 2018, and it's supposed to be released late this year. But that car too, it's a Totally different addressable market they're looking at. You used to have the Porsche 911, the sports car, the two-row sports car. And then Porsche came out with the Cayenne SUV. And at the time, the purists were like, oh my God, this is terrible. Porsche is, you know, selling out. This is going to be terrible. But then there were other people who were like, oh, well, I love my 911. I have this Ford Explorer that I really don't like driving because it doesn't handle very well and it's not fast. I'm going to get the Porsche Cayenne and try that out, right? And it turns out that that's been a great product. It's been such a huge success, so successful that Porsche now sells more SUVs than they sell sports cars, right? Which is incredible. But Porsche might argue and say, ah, 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 you're actually wrong. We're still selling sports cars. They just look like an SUV. And that's what many people would say. When you drive a Cayenne or a McCann, it handles like a sports car. Like It has the utilitarian function of what you need an SUV to have. And so Ferrari is coming out with a more utilitarian vehicle, very late to the game, but that's okay because it's exclusive. There's still going to be demand for it, right? And recently, actually, we've seen other very more luxury exclusive kind of companies like Bentley and Lamborghini come out with you know SUVs that are priced in the $200,000 plus range. And I mean, they've been very, very successful. It's hard to see Ferrari's utilitarian vehicle, I won't call it an SUV, come out and not be a uh, success too. Uh, in particular, the China market where wealthy individuals actually get driven rather than drive. And so to the extent that you are a Ferrari enthusiast, you like F1, you want to own a Ferrari, but probably have one, two or more, you know, Ferraris in your garage. You drive every now and then when you want to, maybe, you know, when you're driving to work or going for a long drive, you know, to your holiday home and you're being driven, you might want to get a Ferrari that can get you driven as well. So things like that. So they've added new models to their range. Over time, the majority of them are going to become electrified. The majority of units sold are going to be either hybrid and eventually EV as well. But Ferrari has a roadmap towards getting to EV. And I think they got it to uh, 2025 when they were going to show us their first EV, basically. Very cool. Definitely a compelling long-term investment from my perspective. RF, 
Thank you so much for coming onto the show. This is a really fun conversation and I'm excited to look a little bit deeper on this company. Before we close out the episode and I let you go, where can the audience go to connect with you and Ensemble Capital? Sure. Yeah. So we have a website, EnsembleCapital.com, where all of our contact info is there. I'm also on LinkedIn. Just look up my name, Arif Kareem. I'll be there. We also have the IntrinsicInvesting.com website where we publish our research and thoughts over time. We post on there regularly talking about our thoughts and uh, we'll do profiles of our companies too sometimes on there. And then finally on uh, Twitter, we're at IntrinsicINV. That's our Twitter handle. And we regularly you know, post stuff there and interact with uh, anyone that wants to interact with us uh, on Twitter. But yeah, so happy to be here on your show, Clay. I enjoy this conversation and look forward to having it again. Yeah, we'll have to have you back. I'd love to have you back on. Thank you so much, Arif. All right, great. Thanks, Clay. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.